Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet Public Health. It's May 2021 and I'm Jonathan Blott. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Richardson from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, whose new research examining the effects of alternative income assistance schedules on drug use and drug-related harm is published this month. In your article, you describe what's known as the check effect So please can you tell us a bit more about this phenomenon and can you describe some of the associated harms and effects on illicit drug use? One of the things that happens in places that provide cash transfer benefits to their populations is that these payments are often made for everyone on the same day. They're often synchronized and they're often synchronized on a monthly basis. And this is often referred to as check day. Uh, In the context where I am in British Columbia, Canada, it usually happens on a Wednesday late in the month, and we call that Welfare Wednesday. And these payments act as signals for increased consumption generally. When people are paid, they consume more stuff. And so for people who use drugs, this results in increased substance use and substance-related harm that comes from increased use. And this check effect was first described in a New England Journal of Medicine article on veterans in 1995. So we've known about this phenomenon for a long time. It's not new. And there's been a lot of research since then, predominantly in North America, that includes national studies, state or provincial level studies, and local studies of what's actually going on and what the harms from these escalations in uh, in drug use are. And so at the individual level, we see things like higher intensity drug use or higher risk drug use. We see an increase in non-fatal and fatal drug poisonings or overdose. We see increases in violence. We see people being forced, for example, to settle drug debts. We see interruptions in their healthcare treatment. Uh, And so this could be HIV treatment or substance use disorder treatment. And we also see people experiencing barriers in accessing health and social services. And that can look at a number of different ways. And we see negative interactions with police often as well, because with increased drug use and increased uh, activity around drug use, there's often increased police activity as well. At the community level, we see things like increases in public disorder, and that affects communities in a range of different ways. And we also see increases in harm at the institutional level. And so this might be, for example, challenges for first responders and emergency departments who find that they are receiving an elevated number of calls or a, a higher number of patients who present. We also see that some services are oversubscribed. So these are things like harm reduction services, like needle exchanges, And other services might be undersubscribed, so services that provide, for example, food benefits because people have just gotten their payments, and so uh, those services are not as needed. In all of this research, what's been identified is an individual effect of the payments themselves, as well as a social effect that happens when everyone's paid at the same time. So you could think about this in a way like... You know, who hasn't ever gone out for a drink after work on payday to celebrate getting paid? And that would be the individual effect. 
The social effect is what happens when, for example, you intend to go out for a single drink and you end up having four or five. And that happens because of all of the social underlying social effects of how we determine what we consume when we're drinking alcohol or using drugs. And so in all of this research, those two effects, I think, are really important to keep in mind, that there's an individual effect that we all have from being paid where we consume more stuff and a social effect when what we're consuming has social cues associated with it. Mm. So the the dangers of uh, these synchronized payments are, are quite well known then, as, as you've described. But but this is the first study to investigate the effects of varying the, the timing and the frequency of income assistance payments. So how did you decide on this particular piece of research? Okay, so this research was really trying to pivot from pointing out the problem with more observational research to conducting more solutions-oriented research. And here the idea is that we already know the problem. And so do we actually need more research? Do we need to look at different outcomes? Do we need more of that? And in my assessment, there really wasn't a need for a lot more observational research. There was much more a need for solutions-oriented research that might encourage governments to take up the idea that the existing system didn't have to be the way that it was, that this was a potentially actionable thing where we could adjust the system to address this issue in a relatively straightforward way. And so that pivot from more observational research to more solutions-oriented research was really focused on examining the potential effectiveness of reforms. So would the idea of changing the timing and frequency of payments actually work? And would there be any unintended consequences? And that was something that we really thought hard about in terms of how would we actually get at evaluating effectiveness and including measurement of potential unintended consequences. And so we settled on conducting a field experiment. And the idea here was to develop the strongest possible evidence of the potential impacts of reform. And to do it in a way where we didn't have to change the whole system in order to look at those potential consequences, we could look at it as an experimental pilot of policy change. And, and so given those outstanding research questions, what did the experiment test? And, and also more specifically, how were you able to vary the timing and the frequency of people's income assistance payments? That's a good question. It took us a long time to figure this out. So we tested two interventions, and those interventions were trying to get at both the individual effect of payments that we talked about and the social effect of everyone being paid at the same time. And so we had one intervention group that received staggered payments so that they occurred away from government payment week. And these payments tried to address the social effect of everyone being paid at the same time. In a second intervention group, we split payments so that people had smaller, more frequent sums of money to try to decrease the magnitude of the individual effect of payments themselves. And so people were randomly placed into either a control group, a comparison group that was on the monthly synchronized government schedule, or one of these two intervention arms. And then the schedule within each inter intervention arm was randomized so that study participants on the intervention 
weren't all paid at the same time. We didn't want to recreate the check effect for a subgroup of people by just paying everyone who was in the study at the same time. And so they were both randomized into the intervention arms, and then their schedules within those intervention arms were randomly chosen. And now the important question of figuring out how to actually do this. And we did it by partnering with a local credit union in Vancouver's inner city that really understood what was happening in the community around synchronized payments. And this local credit union was focused on providing access to financial services for people who commonly experience barriers to getting just regular, normal banking services uh, because of their drug use, because of the way they look, because of a whole host of things. They, they face these pretty significant barriers. And so this local credit union would allow us to control the disbursement of funds. And we did that by having study participants request that their support payments be directly deposited into an account at the credit union. And then the credit union would release these payments according to a study payment schedule. And that was determined by basically a statistical program, an algorithm. And the reason we did it in this way was that doing this through the government could have created problems for our participants. It would have signaled to the agency that provides them with their benefits that they were people who use drugs. And so one of the things that was really important was making sure that we were able to preserve participants' confidentiality and not signal to the government that they were people who were actively using. And so we ended up going with a a private solution to what is in general a, a public problem Uh, But we did this in part because it was logistically a little bit more straightforward. A a bank is a little bit more versatile than a government agency. And in part to protect participant confidentiality. One of the main strengths of of this study is the the widespread uh, consultation that that you described. So could you explain how in your study you ensured stakeholder involvement? So the study was really initiated at the request of community stakeholders that our team had worked with before. It was a group of people who identified that this was a consistent and persistent challenge for the community month after month after month. In developing the idea, we needed to explore whether or not change would be supported more broadly. What we then undertook was a lot of consultation with different government agencies, with service providers, with groups of first responders, uh, with advocacy organizations of uh, people who use illicit drugs. And everyone that we talked to in those initial consultations agreed that the current system was producing harm. They differed a bit on how they thought the system should be changed. And so we balanced, for example, stakeholder suggestion with what the research was telling us in determining what we would actually test in terms of changes to the timing and frequency of payments and developed a wide range of support across actors that don't usually agree with each other. For example, how often do police and drug user advocacy organizations agree on an issue? They often have very different perspectives that they bring. And so what was really important for this study was to make sure that 
the different stakeholders that were affected by this particular phenomenon agreed that reform was possible, desirable, feasible, that something could be done. We also knew as we conducted the study that the uptake of research findings was going to require wide-ranging understanding of the issue and a lot of buy-in. And I was fortunate enough to be able to hire a full-time knowledge broker on the project that was dedicated full-time to supporting ongoing engagement. And that included everything from regular updates and outreach to the community, to uh, community forums where people could come and speak about their particular perspectives on the income assistance system, about this study specifically. And we engaged in wide-ranging consultations that involved over 600 people and over 25 different organizations across the province of British Columbia where the study was conducted, even though the study was actually done in a local, more community-based way. And that stakeholder involvement was fundamental to our understanding of the issue. So there was reciprocal learning that occurred because of that stakeholder engagement. We understood what was happening and how different stakeholders would be affected much better because of the consultation. And it also helped people understand why we were doing the research and what our objective was, which is really to try and find a way for our income support systems to better promote public health. So what were the effects on drug use of the desynchronization of payments? And were you surprised by any of your findings? In the first instance, our drug use findings were really strong and consistent with our hypotheses. So we looked at a few different outcomes related to people's drug use patterns. And as predicted, participants in the intervention arms were about a third as likely as control arm participants to increase their drug use around government payment days. So those are the days when everyone in the community gets paid and the social effect is really prominent for people. And we saw that when you didn't get paid at the same time as everyone else, you were a lot less likely to increase your drug use around payment days. We also looked at what happened around people's individual payment days. So when you're on the intervention arm, you're receiving payments that don't happen during that government payment week. And those individual payments might still produce a signal to increase your drug use. And what we saw was that participants in both intervention arms were about a half as likely as control arm participants to increase their drug use around their individual payment days. So those are the days where the social effect is less prominent, but the individual effect might be more prominent. What this tells us is that there's considerable evidence suggesting that modifying payment schedules can have a strong and beneficial impact on drug use patterns around payment days, both individual payment days and government payment days. In this study, we also looked at a key secondary outcome, which was exposure to violence. And while the statistical signal for these results was not as strong as in the case of the drug use findings, we were really surprised to see that in select analyses for people in the staggered intervention group, so the group that receives their payment once a month but not during government payment weeks, overall exposure to violence increased rather than decreased when compared with the control arm. This was a really surprising finding. It was absolutely it was not consistent at all with our hypotheses. And 
we really need to think further about the potential and intended consequences of reform. This is what this is signaling to us. Importantly, there were very few reports of people being exposed to violence around their individual payments. Uh, the outcome that, that showed an increase in exposure to violence was just looking at violence overall. And when we talk to people in the community about what might explain this really surprising finding, what they focused on was how people who have money when other people don't have money in a context where a lot of people are living in poverty creates resource differentials and people might be targeted because of those resource differentials. And so when we initiated this study, this is not what we anticipated finding at all in terms of exposure to violence and, and what we anticipated would happen. And in thinking about those results, there is a reasonable explanation for that. And we need to be thinking broadly if, you know, if, if change is considered, how to take these alarming and unanticipated findings into account. In light of all these findings, um, I suppose this is uh, quite a broad and general question, but what are some of the policy changes that you'd like to see in the future? And what are some of the, the broader structural changes that policymakers should consider in terms of mitigating the harms of drug use? First and foremost, I think it's critical to recognize how important income assistance benefits are in mitigating the harms of poverty for people generally and for people who use drugs who are socioeconomically marginalized specifically. And so these findings should not justify the retrenchment or withdrawal of benefits for people who use drugs. They shouldn't be used to justify drug testing for income assistance recipients. We've seen how that has gone in a few jurisdictions in the United States, and it has been expensive and ineffective. So that, I think, is a first point to take away, is that income assistance benefits are really critical in mitigating the harms of poverty for people who use drugs. And while our drug use findings were incredibly encouraging, the findings around violence really necessitate caution. They point to the potential for unintended consequences and the idea that when policy reform happens, people adapt to that reform in sometimes predictable and sometimes unpredictable ways. And so a critical takeaway is that the harm from drug use is really strongly linked to the resources, financial and otherwise, that people have access to. We need to be thinking about how social policy is drug policy in many ways because of how intertwined drug use is to uh, resource differentials and, and resource access. In that, we can think about how we have a wider range of policy levers to address drug-related harm than we've previously considered. In discussions around drug policy, it is very rarely that social policy is a part of that discussion. And I think these findings really signal that it should be a part of that discussion. I think there are two key changes to consider. First is that in the study context where this research was conducted, there are already high rates of violence on a day-to-day -day basis for people who uh, who live in the inner city community in Vancouver. And there are high rates of violence that people are exposed to in inner city communities around the world internationally. And those high rates of violence may be linked to low levels of support benefits. 
And so there's a possibility that increasing benefits might reduce predatory violence that's based on those resource differentials that I talked about. So another thing to think about is the, that the intervention that we tested might not apply to all income assistance recipients. Not all people who receive income assistance uh, are people who use drugs. And so what we tested might not apply to them. What that tells us and what our complex finding tell us is that there's an opportunity as benefit systems are increasingly digitized and versatile to provide what we're thinking about as individualized social care. And this is social care that can be customized to support an individual's financial management practices, their particular context, etc. And so you might have people for whom a once monthly payment is absolutely crucial because they buy their food in bulk. And so they need all of their money at the same time to stretch it further. And that might be someone who wants a payment that is a lump sum payment, but they might not want it at the same time as everyone else to avoid those social effects that we talked about uh, in relation to uh, uh, substance use signals and, and cues for increased use. You might have another person who knows themselves and they know that they would like a mid-month bump in their resources. And so they might like a split payment, but they might like it synchronized because there is value to them for the social interactions that happen around government payment days. And so the point is that we're thinking about ways in which you could individualize social care so that people could make their own choice about how they have their cash transfer benefits paid to them. And I think this would help enshrine the values of dignity and choice for income assistance recipients. And these are core values that in our consultations, participants really prioritized that was really something that was emphasized again and again and again, that our systems can do more to enshrine the dignity and choice of people living in poverty. And lastly, I think it's really important that any reform effort meaningfully involve people who have lived in living experience, so people who use illicit drugs, and that these changes should be applied without collecting drug use information because we don't collect consumption information on any other thing that people consume. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not clear why drug use should be different. And that these efforts at reform really should be thinking about what the experience of people who receive income assistance and use illicit drugs can tell them about the best way to the, design the system. And what's next for this line of research then? What kinds of interventions can we expect in the future and, and how do you expect to see future interventions assessed? We still have a number of secondary outcomes that we want to look at in a lot more detail. So we've published now the first outcomes and now I think there are other things that we need to look at. And these are things like the relationship between income assistance reform and drug poisoning and overdoses that we know in most jurisdictions increase around the time of payments. We want to look at things like people's access to services and the barriers they experience in terms of their access to services. And we want to think about things like whether or not having uh, an alternative schedule for your income assistance might displace reliance on other forms of uh, income generation that are harmful, things like sex work or drug dealing. 
We also have a considerable amount of qualitative data. There was a qualitative component of this study, and we're going to really do a deep dive on what we can learn from participant experiences in the study, particularly around which payment schedules work for whom and why. So really getting into that question of people's financial management practices and what participant preferences for income assistance schedules are based on their experience in the study. Would they recommend this? in the system as a whole, or is this something that needs a bit more work? A future intervention might examine exactly what I talked about before, that idea of individualized social care. So it might examine what would happen if instead of an experiment where people were randomly assigned to different payment schedules, what would happen if people were able to choose their payment schedule? And how might we see differences uh, in everything from study retention to study outcomes? One of the things that we learned from doing a randomized trial with volunteers in a highly marginalized community is that it came with a number of challenges for us as scientists and for participants who participated in the study. It was challenging. And so now that this initial study has been completed, I think that we can explore less demanding types of research that could still add to our understanding of how potential solutions might work. And a key question to be thinking about in all of this is how to design our social support systems to better support public health for people. Dr. Richardson, thank you. It's my pleasure. You can read Dr. Richardson's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Richardson, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Public Health wherever you usually get your podcasts.